Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the February edition of FNS Unplugged, where we focus on the FNS sister journals, and discuss a little bit more in-depth articles coming out in each journal. My name is Pietro Bordletto. I'm the media editor for Fertility and Sterility Reports, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, as always, Blake and Daylon. Gents, it's good to be back on with both of you. What do you say? Yeah, guys, I'm excited. I had a Omicron, and now I'm back in the play. Let's get out to the club after this episode. What do you say? <laughs> Sounds awesome. I'm happy to be here. And to my knowledge, I have yet to be succumbed by the virus. To our listeners, we are doing this live on Zoom. So we're all still um, following the CDC social distancing regulations. I want to start off by introducing kind of the theme for this podcast. We weren't planning on having a theme today, but out of pure coincidence, when we were all trying to pick articles that we wanted to discuss from our respective journals, we somehow all found AMH articles that we thought were interesting and worth sharing with all of you. I'm going to start with one from FNS Reports entitled, Can High AMH Mitigate Some of the Age-Related Decline in Live Birth Rates? The Association Between AMH and Live Birth Among Women Over 40 Undergoing IVF. I like this paper for many reasons. One, it came out in my journal and not Blake or Daylon's, but also there was a team from Duke um, led by graduating fellow Ben Harris, who's the first author for this paper. So what do we really know about AMH beyond it being a marker for ovarian reserve? I think the listeners to this podcast are familiar with there's pretty high individual variability among similarly aged women when measuring AMH levels, but we know that it can be a useful predictor for the amount of gonadotropins required during stimulation. But what this paper is really trying to get at is what's the predictive value for women over 40 who are undergoing IVF given this inter-individual variability? Because we really do use this AMH value to guide our counseling and predict success when we're talking to patients. So what did these authors do? They used SARC-CORS data from 2012 to 2014, specifically focusing on fresh autologous transfer cycles only in women 41 and older. Their primary outcome was live birth rate with several important secondary outcomes, such as cycle cancellation rate and cycles where no embryos were available for transfer. There's a small methodologic note I'll make here because how they handled AMH was interesting. Given some of the extreme values in the data set, they decided to log transform AMH. What is log transforming? So when continuous data doesn't follow the bell curve distribution or the normal distribution, one of the statistical things that you can do is you can log transform this data to make it look as normal as possible so that one, you can apply parametric statistics to it, but two, you can improve the generalizability and account for some of these extreme values. And that's exactly what this study did. They log transformed AMH values to account for these extremes and just make it a little bit easier to generalize the results to your population who may have extreme results. Once they log transformed these AMHs, they built a regression model and controlled for things that you would want to control for. And thinking about AMH and IVF, such as age, BMI, parity, smoking status, and infertility diagnosis. So what do they find? Of the nearly 8,000 cycles that they analyzed, the mean age was 42, and the median AMH was 0.7. And I think here are the big counseling numbers that I take away from this paper when looking at women 41 and older undergoing IVF. First, it was a 20% cycle cancellation rate before retrieval, 
of those that did make it to retrieval, the median number of oocytes retrieved was five. 14% of those with oocytes retrieved, unfortunately, did not make it to transfer due to not having anything available to transfer. The clinical pregnancy rate in this cohort was 14%, but unfortunately, 40% of those had a miscarriage, yielding a final live birth rate of 8%. Now, with regard to their log-transformed AMH and the regression model, this one's tricky, and I encourage those who are interested in this topic and this article to read it and spend some time with the methods first and then reading the results. But here's the big takeaway. So after controlling for potential confounders, they saw that log-transformed AMH values were non-linearly associated with live birth, such that among women with an AMH level less than 0.7, the odds of live birth doubled with every unit increase in log-transformed AMH levels. However, beyond an AMH of 0.7, meaning above, the benefits of higher MH levels was marginal, despite improved oocyte yield. So how does this all make sense? I basically read you what I took away from the results section. Well, the authors suggest that in this extreme of age group, women 41 and older undergoing IVF, there appears to be a minimum underlying ovarian reserve, an AMH of 0.7, that's needed for a successful fresh IVF cycle. But beyond that given ovarian reserve level, in this study 0.7, no matter how many eggs you retrieve, you can't outrun the detrimental impact of age-related aneuploidy in these fresh cycles. Obviously, there's some issues with this study, as there are with several studies. The authors acknowledge these. SART data is always kind of tricky to use. There's different assays being used, and Dalon, we're going to talk about assays in a moment since you're the assay guy. And then finally, they don't report cumulative life birth rates. I think more and more of us are really interested in what happens cumulatively from that IVF cycle and not just what happened with that single fresh transfer. So these results probably biasing results towards a poor prognosis patients when you only include single first fresh transfer. Dale, let's talk about assays. Well, I can say that in the time span that these uh, patients were focused, which I think was uh, between 2012 and 2014, they were probably confined to a pretty singular assay. I mean, I don't know. They should have said what the assays were. Did they did they specify? Because in that time span, there hasn't been that many uh, generations of the AMH, but uh, I, I still wonder if uh, they were all consistent. And I think that that has a lot to do with the log normalization is that the breadth of the results uh, were far greater, I think, in the earlier generations of the AMH assay, in particular at the high level, when you had uh, higher AMH values, they were um, less repeatable, less reproducible. So I get why they're doing the, the log transformation because with AMH on that scale, I think it's difficult to fit into the more linear or predictable curve, but is a, a kind of satisfying result, right? I mean, this is what you would, you would like to see that one, you get these uh, older patients who are able to have babies who shouldn't be turned away. And also that AMH may be valuable as a diagnostic factor. I don't know, Blake, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking of a couple of things. I think what you had mentioned, Pietro, about you can't, uh, I think you had said outrun age as the ultimate variable. I think of patients I've had in the past who are fortunate enough to have a very good ovarian reserve that are in their 40s and they don't get a single euploid embryo. And it's fortunately one of those things where it's not surprising. You have hope that because they have so many eggs, we can keep doing it. And eventually we'll find a euploid embryo and you probably would, but eventually you run into an issue of cost and how many times is the patient willing to go through it again. But we were discussing this log AMH value too. I find it challenging on how I would utilize that clinically. I certainly appreciate the technicalities of the 
analysis here and how they're doing the study, but I found myself several times trying to calculate the AMH in my head on what does this equate to when I'm talking to the patient. So, but certainly rather interesting. Yeah, the log values were in the negative. So yeah, it's hard in real time trying and run that translation. But I think to, to reinforce your point here, you got to take every patient as an individual, not only that, but also every cycle. I think when you're getting into these later stages, perimenopause cycles are very irregular and you have to consider that the cohort of uh, follicles in each ovary is probably different from a younger woman. And remembering that AMH is made by pre-antral early growing follicles up to early antral stages, you know, you may not be getting an accurate reflection of what's going on in that specific cycle in which eggs are recruitable. So, you know, AMH that you're seeing in that assay may be two, three cycles ahead of time. So you really got to consider each cycle individually, Pietro, I think. I reached out to Ben, who's the first author of this paper, and shout out to Ben. This is great, and thanks for publishing it. And he said that their group is actually planning on looking at this cohort and evaluating cumulative live birth rates, which I think a lot of us are really moving towards as a much more useful measure of the reproductive potential of a single individual retrieval cycle and being able to really counsel patients. If you undergo IVF once and have X number of eggs retrieved and embryos transferred or frozen, this is your cumulative success. I think it's a much more powerful uh, way to counsel patients. So commend the authors for this work and really excited to see what they publish next, um, looking at the extension of this question. And like I told you, this is AMH month. So we're going to continue with another article. This month's article from FNS Reviews is going to be presented by Blake looking at AMH as well. Thank you, Pietro. So the title of my article is Anti-Malarian Hormone Use and Misuse in Current Reproductive Medicine Practice, a Clinically Oriented Review by authors Molly Quinn, Marcel Cedars, Heather Huddleston, and Annette Santoro. So I'm going to go into a little bit of background again, but since this is uh, the theme of the day is AMH, I would be remiss if we didn't at least mention the origination where it came from, from Dr. Alfred Jost in the 1950s, when he had posited testicular tissue utilizing a rabbit model and discovered that when you graft it onto ovarian tissue, then it forms male structures, basically. You have the presence of anti-malarian hormone, testosterone as well. And so uh, these things are you know, routine to us now. We know this, but it all came from Dr. Alfred Jost. So I, I wanted to at least mention that. But also, it's, AMH ultimately was found to be a product made by the granulosa cells of early developing follicles and considered to be an estimate of the quantity, not quality, of women's remaining ovarian follicles. So this review I'm going to talk about, I like how it's organized. It's uh, It was a fun read for me, but it focuses on common clinical do's and don'ts, if you will, in the clinical utilization of AMH. So how I categorize this and how I'm going to summarize it, I'm going to start with the do category first. So the authors state that AMH is generally reliable, it's cost-effective, and readily available um, estimation of ovarian reserve. However, once again, it's measuring the oocyte quantity and not quality. They do advocate for using AMH or whenever you're looking at AMH, if it's very low, this can possibly predict time to menopause. And undetectable AMH levels have been associated with approximately a 60% probability of menopause within five years. However, they note that this is more limited to patients that are less than 45 years of age. They do advocate for using AMH for gonadotropin dosing and IAVF cycles. 
antrophagal count and AMH can significantly vary among women of the same age. And so it's not a one size fits all type of scenario. So using this lab value is very helpful in knowing the dose, but also this can be helpful for not only optimizing response in IVF, but decreasing the risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome too. And lastly, they do advocate for using AMH to support the diagnosis of PCOS. Now, there, there is some criticism in this because there's a lack of, as we talked about, international standardization of assays. There's variability in assays. It's not quite yet adopted into the diagnostic criteria for PCOS, at least um, in the United States. But they do say that in patients who have a really high AMH value, this is something that you can add to your diagnostic criteria or consider adding to a diagnostic criteria. In the do not category now, I'll kind of shift gears. They say do not use AMH to predict fertility or exclude patients from undergoing ART. And I think that's an important one because, again, everyone is, uh, this is predicting their response to medication, not necessarily the quality of the oocytes that you're going to obtain. Um, there are prospective longitudinal time to pregnancy studies, and they have shown that low AMH did not have reduced fecundability. And conversely, they, the authors discussed that a high AMH level is not necessarily reassuring that a patient has a normal fertility. And they also discussed that although this is a reversible phenomenon, that the use of AMH to predict ovarian reserve when a patient's on combined oral contraceptive pills or a high-dose progestin is something you want to pay attention to. If the patient's been on OCPs for five years, obtaining an AMH value is probably going to be lower than it normally would be. And if you're trying to dose her for IVF, that's going to be a little deceptive. Since the FSH is suppressed from these medications, uh, so is also the growth of the FSH-dependent antral follicles, as Daylon discussed just a moment ago. So in conclusion, the authors state that AMH is a good predictor of oocyte quantity, not quality. It helps predict menopausal transition in some contexts, as well as helping to derive gonadotropin dosing for IVF cycles. It also can be utilized to support the diagnosis of PCOS. So a couple of comments I have on this. Um, day long, we talked about lab standardization or inter-assay variability. How, how is there a way we could go about standardizing labs? I mean, is there that much inter-assay variability? I think that um, the inter-assay variability is a thing, but I think that what we're talking about here really, to me, from my perspective, are, are the really highs and the really lows, right? When it comes right down the middle, anything above one, you don't even look at it, right? But if it's undetectable, I think that's really the key. And there's been, I think, multiple stories that are coming out saying undetectable AMH is not, you know, it does not necessarily correlate with the negative outcome. And I think that's really critically important for reason I talked about before, you know, the phase of, of, of follicles, especially in, in older patients, but also just the, the level of AMH at the ovary versus the serum. Remember, this has to get into the serum and studies that have been done. There's one uh, in HR about 15 years ago showing that oh, you're anywhere from 50 to 100 times the level of AMH at the level of the ovary versus the serum. So there's probably some follicles there in the ovary producing AMH. It's just not getting out to the serum. So I'm really focused here on the negative. Interassay variability, fine. I think we're never going to get the absolute number, but it's always an estimate, right? The, the key here, I think, is at the extremes um, and specifically in the undetectable. I'm glad you brought up undetectable because you, Dale and you and I are both from Wild Cornell, and there's a paper that was published from our center by David Reichman in 2014, published in Fertility and Sterility, 
that looked at our center's experience of women with undetectable AMHs. And even with an undetectable AMH, 23% of patients under 40 achieved a live birth after transfer. This is an article that our center wrote in response to an editorial that FNS published that kind of threw out the concept that we should really be precluding patients from undergoing IVF with AMH levels that are less than 0.3 or even potentially undetectable. And I think locally, our practice is that we really do use the AMH to figure out how much medication to give them, but we don't use it as a, you should not do IVF, you should consider egg donation. And I know that there are a lot of centers that do. And this paper, I think, points out really nicely, there are certain do's and don'ts, and the do's and don'ts are backed up by data. So this is a great paper for fellows who are considering how to use AMH. These are great articles for people who are out in practice and considering how to best counsel their patients about what AMH means. I love a good do and don't paper. What a great way to write a review article, make it really clinically useful. Yes, it's a great device. And uh, I can say this because I've never seen a patient and never made a single clinical judgment. So I can stand here from my armchair and judge you physicians. I think it's laziness, right? AMH was very tempting as a way to just make a judgment on a patient based on one parameter. But the old adage, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence necessarily. So I, I think, again, we got to take every patient as, as an individual, which is what we're learning time and time again. Yes. So what about on the contrary, when you have an AMH that comes across your inbox and it's in its twenties, I mean, can you, is that even a reliable number? What do you make of that, Dalen? Well, as I said, I don't have to make the clinical judgments, but I would say that that's abnormal. I, and we very, very rarely get numbers at, at that level. And it's oftentimes PCO. I think, you know, we have a, a paper hinting at the function of AMH. And I think that's something that maybe we ought to consider in at the high scale. Like I said, at the, at the beginning of my comment there, if you're 20 in the serum, you're at bonkers levels at the level of the ovary. And I wonder if there isn't some kind of physiology or pathology there that AMH might be contributing specifically something among the constellation of sequelae that follow PCO. So I think that's going to be really interesting to look into. Elon, that's a great natural transition because you mentioned patients. Sometimes patients are humans and sometimes patients are primates. And it seems like every month we're going to be talking about a primate paper in FNS science. And this month we have one that's on primates and AMH. Tell us a little bit more about it. Yes. You know, I can't have my way experimenting with humans. Not that I ever would, but I'm going to the next best thing. And in that case, that's the macaques. This is a story coming out of Oregon Health and Science University from the Primate Research Center there from the lab of Jing Zhu, who has published extensively on AMH in her research career. And I just want to fill in the background here. Blake, I think you did a good job of identifying the fact that AMH is actually named for its role in males, right? That's interesting, but it's had many lives since then, right? In mice, it's been shown that if you knock out AMH, that you get premature ovarian insufficiency, essentially. All the primordial follicles kind of activate and move into this growth phase and are depleted. And on the other side, if you supplement a mouse with exogenous AMH, at admittedly super physiological levels, you completely suppress the ovary. And this has been really exciting as a potential therapeutic in treating patients who are undergoing cancer chemotherapy that has a gonadotoxic effect on the ovary. And it has shown in mouse that you can suppress the ovary with AMH and spare 
some of the primordial follicle reserves. So that's an exciting role for AMH, the therapeutic life that it's had. But it's also, in terms of its physiological function, we're really in space. You guys talked about how valuable it is as a diagnostic, but we still don't know what it does. And that's really colored in by our in vivo and in vitro studies, explant studies with many species, including rat, goat, uh, rhesus macaque, which I'm going to come back to, and human ovarian cortex, xenograss, explants. We've looked at AMH in many different contexts, and the results only get more confusing. Some of these monoovulatory studies have shown that, in fact, AMH doesn't necessarily suppress primordial follicle growth exclusively, but it can also have effect on growing follicles. So following up from that, the Zhu Lab has designed this study, which I thought really made the most of limited resources. Monkeys are hard to come by. In this study, they used 12 monkeys, but they integrated them in this kind of rotating multiple iterations in fusion cycles for each of these uh, monkeys over the course of seven cycles with an intermediary rest cycle. So they were able to get essentially N equals four cycles out of each of these 12 monkeys in three conditions. Control, recombinant AMH, and AMH neutralizing antibodies. So they were increasing AMH, they were decreasing the AMH, and they were delivering it in this continuous infusion pump throughout the follicular phase. So I, I would say a really strong methods in terms of delivery and a robust study design. And what they found effectively, I mean, you could look into the details, but what they found reinforced the more recent studies in monoovulatory animals, showing that in the context of recombinant AMH, you got less larger antral follicles, but you got more follicles of smaller diameter. So early growth phases were amplified not suppressed by recombinant AMH. And conversely, when you knock down AMH using a neutralizing antibody, you got many more large antral follicles at the expense of smaller antral follicles. So this reinforced this idea that AMH has uh, yet another uh, function, uh, another life uh, in later follicle development. It may suppress primordial follicle activation, but it seems like um, recombinant AMH may be suppressing also the growth and, and maturation uh, of later stage antral follicles, um, and thereby getting a piling up of smaller antral follicles. Uh, they also looked at cell proliferation. They looked at cell death, hormone levels. They looked at aromatase staining. So there's a lot of details I think that are worth looking at in the paper. They were pretty comprehensive. But I will say at the end of the day, my major takeaway is that we really don't know. And uh, this, while it takes us a step closer, I think there's still a lot of confusion regarding AMH just because of the nature of the molecule. This is a TGF-beta family ligand, and TGF-beta ligands are morphogens, right? And morphogens are defined by the fact that they have action at a distance and differential activity depending on the level that's present. So when you're dealing with that kind of variability, in a clearly a complex system that spans months in human, I think it's gonna be really hard to put your finger on what AMH does, especially when it seems like it's doing a lot of things. I don't know, guys, what, what do you think? The, the value of AMH as a diagnostic uh, is clear, but is there any idea to use it therapeutically or is there any interest in what it actually does? What do you guys think? I love that we ended with this article because that's exactly what I thought when I read this. We've really 
people are familiar with AMH as a diagnostic tool. And I know your lab and some of your research, Dalon, has really looked at the potential uses of AMH as a therapeutic. And I think this paper talks nicely that we don't know a whole lot about what AMH is doing, and it may do different things at different places at different times. But I put my sci-fi hat on for a little bit, and you mentioned a pump that gave people AMH. And, you know, the diabetics really have figured out how to use a pump and even closed-loop systems with glucose monitoring to kind of set it and forget it and just get really tight control of a very complex system. I'm surprised that in 2022, we haven't gotten there with IVF. Imagine a closed loop system where you could really give these medications, be it FSH, LH, HCG, and potentially even AMH in a way that's more physiologic at the right doses at the right time. And could we get a little bit bigger bang for our buck and be helping a greater population of patients? Dylan, do you think AMH could actually work as a therapeutic? Is it stable enough? Is its half-life predictable enough? Could you give it peripherally and get it to the ovaries in a consistent and reproducible way? Or is that kind of too sci-fi right now? Well, there's plenty of efforts along those lines. Uh, it, it's about delivery, right? And I think you said it, the, these infusion pumps have gotten really effective. And a, a former colleague of yours, David Pepin at uh, MGH, he actually really pioneered the idea of using AMH as a therapeutic. And what I've learned from him in our collaborations is that the dose is really critical. And another nuance to any signaling, but specifically in this case is feedback. When you dump a bunch of exogenous anything on a system, it's gonna try and restore equilibrium. And the ovary is no different. So you can imagine, let's say in the context of chemotherapy, you dump a bunch of AMH on there, you completely suppress the ovary, but when you withdraw that AMH, is there going to be a kind of feedback, a rebound that's going to lead to a massive mobilization, perhaps globally on the scale of the whole ovary and lead to premature ovarian depletion? So you really got to wonder and, and question not just the intervention, but the system. Um, and of course, that's why we have macaca mulata, Pietro, so that we can do these experiments without having to uh, do anything crazy. Maybe this was just me, but I was so fixated on conceptually thinking, how does an intra-ovarian catheter stay in place in a monkey? I mean, the whole time I was reading it, I just, that's all I could think about. I think it's just the lots of bananas. It's not carefully described in the results section, but I have to imagine there's a, a carrot and a stick kind of system, in this case, a banana and a stick kind of system. Dale, on any insights as a I think Scientist. bananas are definitely involved. These macaques are actually, they're doing their part for uh, humankind is the other thing. I don't, I don't underestimate their, their commitment to the sciences. Um, but, you know, in all seriousness, Blake, I think it is an important point to consider that how much AMH is getting to the ovary and how much AMH is the ovary seeing uh, if, if, it's, if it's getting there at all. So, a lot of details. It's difficult to do these experiments. I mean, 12 monkeys is a ton of monkeys for any experiment, super expensive. So you got you to gotta take these uh, results for what they're worth. And, and, and it's another uh, brick in the wall, so to speak. So I was really excited to read it. And I invite you all to check it out. Thanks, Dalon. And thanks to you, our listener, for tuning into this month's episode of FNS Unplugged. As you all know, the conversation continues beyond the podcast. You can follow us on our Twitter account, Facebook, and Instagram, where we'll be sharing the latest and greatest research coming out in the FNS family of journals. Until next time, that's it for us. Bye-bye. 
This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility On Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect the Fertility and Sterility family of journals or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. 